This podcast is brought to you by the Maryland State Library Agency. The MSLA podcast features presenters from statewide youth programs, as well as learning opportunities for library staff and resources for patrons of the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Print Disabled. Hello and welcome everyone to the Maryland State Library's Guest Hour. This is LaShawn, the Youth Librarian, and today I have three special guests. The Garden Time podcast team is here with us. We have Rachel Rose, we have Michaela Boyley, and we have Emily Zobel. 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 Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry, Emily. I didn't mean to mess that name up. Um, And the Garden Time podcast. Now, time is T-H-Y-M-E. Get it? (laughs) It's brought to you by the University of Maryland's extension and you can locate all the fascinating things they do at their website extension.umd.edu so welcome rachel michaela and emily to our guest hour thank you for coming on today thanks so much LaShawn, for having us yeah we're so excited to be here we are and we're (laughs) always really excited to talk plants and pollinators and all the good things But of course, so I didn't get to introduce you all. I want you to tell me a little bit about yourselves, what you do over at the University of Maryland Extension, and uh, let us know more about this fascinating field of horticulture. Yeah, so um, this is Michaela, and I'm actually the University of Maryland Extension agent here in Talbot County for home horticulture. Uh, And Rachel and Emily are in different counties, and I'll let them talk about their positions Uh, But we also coordinate our local master gardener programs, which is a volunteer program um, of educated volunteers that give back to their communities. So education um, is not only something we're passionate about, but it's also our jobs. So that's that's always a really fun thing. And, um, you know, as far as what is horticulture or what defines a horticulturist, there's a few different definitions. um, But in general, it's someone who studies plants fruits, vegetables, how to cultivate these things, and how to propagate them. So we, while we do focus on that, we have a wide range of different topics that we cover both in our podcast and, and in our jobs. So it, it goes definitely beyond that scope. Wonderful. We do have an order, you know, like usually it's Michaela, <laughs> me, and Emily. So, <laughs> Tell us about so- just yourself. (laughs) So hi, everyone. My name is Rachel Rhodes. I am the horticulture educator and master gardener coordinator for the University of Maryland Extension in Queen Anne's County. And like Michaela, I do horticulture education to the general public. And then I am also the volunteer coordinator for the master gardener group in Queen Anne's County. All righty. Thank you, Rachel and Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Zobel. So I am the Agriculture and Home Hort and Master Gardener Coordinator for Dorchester County. So I am uh, the county right below Michaela's County of Talbot. So all three of us are on the Eastern Shore. Um, And in addition to handling homeowner garden questions and facilitating the Master Gardener Volunteer Program, I also do educational outreach for our farming community, um, specifically around the realm of vegetable production and integrated pest management because my background is in entomology. Wow. I I want to throw it that stink bugs. I hated them, (laughs) but I'm sure there was a benefit to them somewhere along the way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So stink bugs are a weird one because nobody likes them because they smell bad, but we actually have a lot of beneficial species of stink bugs that they smell bad, but they eat a lot of the 
the bad stink bugs or like bad bugs in general. So they're really cool. I think a lot of people, when they hear stink bug, think of the brown marmorated one, which was the invasive one that came out or got here a few years ago when it was kind of brown and a little dull looking. Um, but there's actually, if you go down south of us, so like in the Carolinas and Florida, you've got some tropical-ish species that have like blues and greens and oranges on them. Um, and then even something like our two spotted one here is like black and red. And I actually think it's kind of pretty. So maybe like you just need to get widen your scope of stink bug knowledge um, a <laughs> little bit go. more. Okay, I'm gonna drop my bias against stink bugs. I'm, okay. I'm, okay, I will. <laughs> I'm still not liking them, but yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, so if I was interested and I wanted to become a horticulturalist, what would I need to do? What are some things that I need to pursue? I mean, I would say right off the bat that anyone could be a horticulturist, just grow something and observe it and take some notes. Um, I'm an adamant believer in the old uh, Mythbuster slogan, which is as long as you're writing something down, it's science. <laughs> so if you are a, a kid and science fair is coming up and you want to do something horticultural inspired, pick some different growing methods, pick some plants to grow, take some measurements. Um, I think that's how I got into it. I don't think a single year of science fair through middle school or high school, I didn't do a plant themed project. <laughs> I'm um, with you, Emily. I did the same thing for science yeah. fairs, like every single one, something about a plant. Yeah. And then later on, if you're talking more of like wanting to pursue a career that would actually like pay your bills, um, horticulture is a really broad industry. So there's lots you could do in it. You can do you know, plant production and horticulture in general, something like landscape design would also count as in there as well. There are multiple universities and community colleges that would offer degrees in both of those. There's also lots of online courses that you could take if you're really interested in it. So, and even our master gardener program is, is mostly targeted as, um, not degree-seeking individuals, but people who are interested in the knowledge um, is just a wealth of information. So there's a lot of programs out there that I think um, can cater to different interests. It's such a broad field because um, you could go into, you could be entomologists like Emily, or you could get into native plants like me or vegetable gardening like Rachel. So there's, there's so many different things you can really get into. That is wonderful. And I did see that you have four, you work with 4-H clubs over at the Maryland Extension as well. Yes. Yes. We we're all housed in the same offices. Yep. So wonderful. each office has a 4-H educator and assistant. Excellent. Excellent. So you all are a team, the Garden Time team. How did this come up? How did it come up, come to pass? Uh, tell us a little bit more about your podcast and how can we tune in? Yeah, so we're, I think it mostly started for a mutual um, nerdiness of plants and talking all things plants and insects because we love bugs too. Um, so we're a monthly podcast. Uh, we record once a month and uh, you can find us on a variety of different platforms, um, Stitcher, Google, iTunes, or, or you can just listen straight from our website, which is housed on Buzzsprout. Um, and we're spelled just like you mentioned before, it's garden time and time is spelled T-H-Y-M-E because of course, um, <laughs> we have to have a plant pun. We're very punny yes. people to some extent. Yeah. So if we get through this interview without at least like four or five puns, um, then it, it'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, we, like I said, we cover a wide variety of topics. Maybe one week we're talking about turf. 
And then the next week, um, like last last month or in February, we talked about animal mating habits to um, to highlight Valentine's Day and kind of have a fun fun thing to talk about. So we we really do kind of go all over the place in a good way um, and cover just a <laughs> wide range of topics. That is fantastic. Now you said that anyone can become a horticulturalist. So if I'm starting out. What are five top statements of wisdom you would give a beginning a gardener? I think the first um, thing to think about when you're starting to become a gardener or you want to start gardening is if you're doing any in the ground gardening, you need to get a soil test first. It's, it's a lot cheaper to get a soil test than to have to correct a situation within your soil after you've spent a lot of money putting plants in the ground because plants are expensive when you first start gardening. Container gardening is also a really good option, um, but you have to remember to use potting soil as your mixture because it's a it's usually a well-balanced mix um, versus using straight compost. A lot of people think that compost is a really, you know, it's like got all these nutrients and it's going to be great, but you have to have a good mixture of potting soil with compost, not just straight compost. And if you don't have the space for an in-the-ground garden or a container garden, go on the University of Maryland Extension website and look for a community garden in your county. Because that's a really good option as well for you to have space to garden if you don't have any other option. The second thing I would say is do your research and figure out the right plant for the right place. Um, you know, there's a there are a lot of garden resources out there to learn from, books, extension websites. Our home, home and Garden Information Center is a great one. But just sitting back and observing your environment and figuring out the light of your property at 9 a.m. versus the light that hits your property at 5 p.m. And then that also plays into getting your soil test and figuring out if the plant you've picked out is going to be right for the conditions that you have on your property. Where do I go to get my soil tested? Oh, that's a perfect question. The University of Maryland Extension Home and Garden Information Center has a whole page dedicated to our soil testing labs in our region and um, and then YouTube video on how to take a soil test, um, which is also incredibly helpful. We also, as extension educators, always recommend that we use a soil testing facility and lab in our region because those are going to be the labs that are more more they're like related. they're regional specific specific yes that's it that's what I was thinking Re they're more regional specific than if we were to send a soil test result soil test sample out to like Colorado or California they're they're going to be more knowledgeable about the region that we have here in Maryland on that um, note, I would say for any of your listeners that may not be in the Mid-Atlantic area, because we know as Podcast hosts, we tend to get listeners who come from all over the United States and are all over the globe, uh, reach out to your own local extension service uh, to determine like where to properly get information about a soil test. Yes, that's that's a great tip. I always like this third one, and it's Rome wasn't built in a day. 
So don't go out and plan what you're going to do with your entire landscape in a season. Pick a few plants and add them at a time. Just don't, it can be very overwhelming to sit back and look at your landscape and think about how you're going to accomplish a task when you don't have one unlimited resources and two unlimited time. So pick an area, work on that small area, and then just move on successionally to a different area every year. And I always like to remind people, number four is read the label of your plants, your fertilizer, your pesticides, and you know, your plant label always has the type of plant that it is, the growth area. So how wide it's going to grow, how tall it's going to grow, if it likes the sun, if it likes the shade, if it likes it wet, if it likes to dry. All of these details are important when you're picking the right plant for the right place. And then if you're going to apply any fertilizer, it has the same things, you know, how much you should apply within a square foot, what the ratio of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium is. Um, and that rolls into getting your soil test because your soil test is going to tell you what you're going to need for your soil and fertilizer needs. And then a pesticide, if you're going to apply a pesticide, the label is the law. So read the label in depth, know what it's there to treat, what it's not going to treat. And, um, and then it also has really important information like what to do if you misapply it or what to do if you get it in your eye or get it on your skin, what protective equipment or protective clothing to wear when you're applying that pesticide. Those are all really, really important things to remember when you're applying any type of pesticide, organic or not organic. Um, and then the most important thing I think is to remember that you're gonna fail at something. And, <laughs> and that's that, okay. Think, there's a single one of us that doesn't have a dead plant in their home or someplace in their property that's had to be removed. Um, that's true. It's all, and it's all, life is a great learning experiment and your garden can just be a continuation of that. Exactly. The landscape true. is a big science experiment and mm -hmm. there's a lot of factors we can't control, nor do we want to, um, you know, like weather or the wildlife and insects that you encounter, it's all part of the same ecosystem. So it's okay if something doesn't work out in that ecosystem, you just either try something different or are, you know, see what happened. <laughs> so not everything works out perfectly. We, we're big advocates for that. <laughs> totally agree. And I was just thinking, are there any things that we should not do when it comes to gardening? Because I know some of my neighbors love to use those uh, chemicals to kill grass and weeds and and bugs and do all kinds of things. So what are some things we definitely shouldn't do to our gardens? You want to take this one, Emily? <laughs> I can do this one. Yeah, I can do this one. Um, so I think just to hit on what we just said, like, don't give up. You're, you're going to get discouraged and that's okay. I think everybody's garden, especially like come August time becomes a weedy mess because you've gone on vacation and it's hot out and you don't really care about keeping the weeds down anymore. And you're like looking at it and you're thinking, oh man, this doesn't look appealing anymore. And like my tomatoes are shriveled and, and all this and don't give up. Even if like, you know, you didn't succeed fully this year, keep going at it. Um, gardening and just 
in general has lots of really good benefits, not only to kind of the environment, but for mental health and healthy eating habits, getting outside and all that. So please, if you have a rough year, don't give up, please continue to try. Um, first off the bat, from an environmental perspective, please do not purchase or use invasive species. Um, when you go to a store to purchase plants, if you see some that are tiered, um, so our invasive species are in a tiered um, method here, and some of them, despite being like tier three and two, meaning that they're more aggressive, you can still buy them at box stores. So things like English ivy, you can still really buy English ivy. And frankly, we don't recommend it. It's it will, uh, one little leaf is all it takes to spread over a rapid area. Um, so we would shy people away from purchasing anything that would be considered an invasive species and to kind of consider putting in either something that's less invasive um, or ideally a native plant, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, so I think those are kind of key things to do. Uh, you sort of touched this on this already, but we do recommend getting things like that soil test to make sure that you are only applying the fertilizer that you need. We are so close to the Chesapeake Bay that any excess fertilizer you have increases the likelihood of runoff. And I don't always think a lot of people realize this, but the number one crop in America is turf grass. We have more acres of turf grass than anything else, which is surprising because it doesn't feed anything. Um, it's pretty much just there for us to like have this aesthetic green lawn. Um, so being able to come to terms with the fact that like you don't need the most pristine lawn. And even if you have an established lawn for a few years, it probably doesn't need any more fertilization, especially if you are cutting your turf grass high and letting those clippings fall down. Here in the Mid-Atlantic, they break down really quickly because of our temperature and our humidity. So you don't really need to fertilize things like turf grass. Likewise, once you have established trees, they also probably don't need to be fertilized. So we would recommend really making sure to not over fertilize, um, learning to deal with some of that plant damage when it comes to things like insects so that you're not out there necessarily spraying an insecticide uh, every time you see an insect is, is another crucial thing because your landscape is ultimately an ecosystem and feeding damage is, is part of an ecosystem. Um, I sort of always pull this story out and you guys can cut this if it starts becoming too tangent. But one of the first years I was here, I had someone call me who was really upset that there were caterpillars eating their milkweed because they planted the milkweed for the monarch butterflies. And I had to explain to them that milkweed is the host plant of the monarch butterfly caterpillar. So the caterpillars feeding on it are the monarch caterpillars. And like, that's what you want. That's its purpose for being in your landscape. And if you aren't okay with that, then you should probably switch to just feeding plants for the butterflies. But like, this is, that's the purpose of planting it is that for the caterpillars to chew on. So it was a great learning opportunity. They actually became a great person who has tons of milkweed on their property and they bring me caterpillars and send me pictures all the time, but it was a great like aha moment. So I think spending that time really doing that research on your plants, uh, especially if you're going to put native ones um, is really beneficial. I think you hit it on the head um, with that. I was just thinking about one quick story. I planted mint and I did not do my research. And I tell you that oh, thing spread from my uh -huh. yard to the neighbor's yard. We had mint 
all across the neighborhood, but <laughs> I learned my lesson. You have to do your research. It smelled good when you cut the grass, yeah, I but bet it did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we were supposed to have mint spreading all across the neighborhood like that. So you, you said a, um, a few times that we should really invest in native plants. So how can we find out what is native to our area? And I know that many people are on a budget and sometimes plants that are native plants can be quite costly. So where, what are some resources to purchase and where can we go to find exactly what's best? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take this one. Um, so <laughs> well, first, I'm going to kind of define what a native plant is, because uh, there is sort of a technical term, and then I'll try and get it into our terms. <laughs> so native plants are something that occurs naturally, so it's growing on its own um, in an ecoregion, so basically in a local area that has evolved over time to adapt to these growing conditions that they're present in, and they have co-evolved with other species, namely wildlife, um, so insects, birds, mammals, but with they've co-evolved with other plant communities as well because they're they're all working together, right? It's all about interconnectedness um, and part of that food web system. So native plants are something that are, are sort of indigenous to the area, you could say. Um, so they haven't been introduced by human hands, which we've done a lot of that. So you know we're guilty, but um, there are a ton of good resources available, especially um, the University of Maryland Extension. Home and Garden Information Center website. And that can help you to kind of determine what plants might be local to your area or what might be recommended for growing in your area. Now, we're talking about doing kind of affordable gardening. The beautiful thing about native plants is that they're really good. Most of them are good at reproducing by seed. So some people even may be able to, if they're savvy enough, um, collect the seed and to grow those plants essentially for free. Um, now, I don't advocate for like the harvesting of things on the side of the road and, you know, stuff like that. I want people to be safe. But um, if you have a home garden or especially master gardeners are really good at connecting people with where they can find native plants, either for sale or, you know, master gardeners will have plants in their pockets. I mean, they'll, they'll pull them out and give them to you. Um, so there is a really great networking community out there. A lot of enthusiastic people. And um, again, native plants are really good at growing in this area. So hopefully you're able to find something that can grow pretty easily from seed or from a cutting or division or some, some kind of propagation method. That's good information. Go ahead, um, Rachel. I was going to say, Michaela's speaking from experience about pulling plants out of her pockets. <laughs> yeah, seeds. Well, seeds. I keep seeds, seeds. in my pockets. Do you Not have seeds problem. in your pocket right now? <laughs> no, I don't. But it is winter. So, you know, that might be the only time. Well, and, you know, I'll go ahead and jump to, to sort of our next question here, which why there are so many benefits to having native plants in the landscape. And I would like to say, where do I begin? Because I could go on for a while. So there are a lot of high wildlife values associated with our native plants. Um, and native plants can be trees, shrubs, uh, perennials, which is something that comes back year after year. We have all sorts of different types. Um, so mostly these are beneficial for insects, mammals, and birds. They support them, just like Emily was saying. They, um, you know, they serve a purpose in the environment. And I think that's what's important to remember about plants. Yes, they're great for us to look at, but they should also serve a purpose. So they should be food for something or produce something um, to give back to the ecosystem, so to speak. 
Uh, and I also like to think native plants are better adapted to our growing conditions or our native growing conditions. And some of them are even really well adapted to harsh growing environments like growing in the cracks of sidewalks. Um, so, you know, they can withstand quite a bit. Um, and, and then they also, our native plants preserve a lot of genetic diversity and we call that biodiversity. And that just means that we keep a diverse environment so that there is something blooming at all times of the year. Um, you know, you have many different population types so that they don't go extinct, essentially. Um, you know, when we have a lot of invasive or non-native plants, they can kind of crowd out our native communities and then we lose that genetic population. Um, but I also like to argue native plants are just as beautiful and um, they're, they're more interesting because they have so many different adaptations. It's not just a flower, you know, it's, it's grasses have beautiful color in the winter or, you know, it, there's just so many different reasons to love them. And hopefully they're lower maintenance if they are planted in the correct area. Okay, I'll step off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. Very good. So native plants is great, but also um, attracting pollinators is also a great thing to do as a gardener. So what are pollen pollinators and how can we best attract them? I'm going to turf that to Emily. Are you sure? Um, you can take this one, Rachel, if you no, want. That no, that is okay. all Emily. This is all me. Okay. So a pollinator is an animal that's going to move pollen from the male part of the flower to the female part of the flower, which is going to allow for fertilization. This can vary plant to plant in that some plants will have both male and female flowers on the same plant. Some will have completely separate plants. Some plants will have male and female parts on the same flower as well. So lots of variety, lots of different opportunities for it. Um, so one of the pollinators that I think most people jump to is bees, because this is the one that we think of. These are the ones that we see buzzing around our garden. This is the one that we always see to like, save the bees. They're two thirds of all the food in the grocery store. And bees are great pollinators, but they are not the only pollinators. Um, we have a lot of other insects that pollinate. So things like flies and beetles pollinate. Butterflies and moths will do a little bit of pollination as well, but it's not it's not their forte, it's not their specialty the same way. Um, you'll also have things like ants that'll pollinate and then uh, rodents and bats. And even like some reptiles will pollinate like water and aquatic plants. So there's lots of different animals that would fall into this. You also have a lot of plants that are pollinated just by the wind itself. So they don't require an animal or a pollinator at all in order to do this. And within kind of our own garden, pollinators do this pollination process, which is really key, for example, if you're doing a vegetable garden, because you need that pollination to take place in order to produce that tomato or that squash or that eggplant or that chili pepper that you're trying to grow. So you've got to have that. But another aspect of pollination is that they also serve a role within the food chain. Um, some of them are carnivorous in some life stage of theirs. So they are really good for biocontrol for kind of those insects that may be feeding on our plants. Others of them provide the food for higher levels. Um, so they themselves play a level in that food chain as well. I was just thinking, okay, you said bees are pollinators, but they're not the only pollinators. But no. if I really cannot stand, people have a real natural fear <laughs> of bees. 
but they're important. So are all bees equal when it comes to pollination? And can is there a way to not attract them in, in the garden if, <laughs> if you really have a fear of bees? So, so yes and no. So um, I think a lot of us think of the honeybee traditionally as our, our golden child pollinator, but it's, it's safe to say that the honeybee, first of all, is not native. Honeybees are from Europe. So we brought them over when we came over and colonized the Americas, like the Europeans brought them over. Um, there are native species of bees, but they they don't produce honey. Honeybees are the only bee species that produce honey. They're one of the few that are use social, meaning they have a queen and workers and like a colony setting. So they tend to be one of the only bees that would be aggressive enough to sort of sting and normally that's in a case when they feel threatened. So if you come across their hive and they feel threatening their hive, they'll sting. Or if you're like out in your garden and you like grab them, obviously they're, they're going to sting because they feel like you're going to crush them. For the most part, most of our native bees are not going to sting because they either one are very tiny. So their stinger, which is an inverted ovipositor, isn't going to really puncture your skin. And two, they have no nest to guard. So this nest guarding behavior isn't necessarily going to work. Now that's different for wasps. <laughs> wasps are a, a separate, they're similar to bees, but a little separate. Um, so generally speaking from a bee perspective, you don't really need to fear being stung by them as much. The initial question of are they equal pollinators? It's yes and no. So um, in your garden, different bees are going to pollinate different things to different levels of success. When it comes to like vegetable gardening, that's a little different than like native plants. A lot of our native plants are very specialized. So they may only have one or two insects that in fact do pollinate them. So a lot of our early spring blooming flowering like trees and stuff are either wind pollinated or they're pollinated by flies. If they smell bad, chances are they're pollinated by flies because flies like that kind of mucky soury kind of smell more so than bees like the sweet smelling things. And if you're really interested in learning more about native bees, we had a really great episode that we released last year um, in June 2022, where we interviewed Dr. Sam Dreyerji of the Brogan. US. <laughs> I always get his last name wrong. I'm sorry, sorry Sam. <laughs> I adore you, Sam. Sam Sam Drogi of the U.S. Geological Society, and he runs the Bee Lab, where they basically have done these massive bee surveys of all the different bee species, not only here in the Mid-Atlantic, but all across the United States. Um, and it was a really fun, interesting episode. So if you want to learn more specifically about native bees, I recommend checking that out. Um, if you ultimately really cannot stand having bees in your garden at all, your best option is probably to put in things that don't necessarily have bright, fragrant flowers. So you can do things either that are night blooming because bees don't tend to fly at night, or you can do things like ornamental grasses or ferns or uh, leafy greens um, or stuff like that. That's not going to bring in the pollinate or the bees and the pollinators. They can still add environmental impact and still be beneficial, but just not necessarily in the traditional like pollinator way that we think of. And I think it's also important to note, not even all wasps are mm -mm. bad. We have a lot of what are called parasitic uh, wasps, which actually control some of our pest insect populations. So the world of insects is vast and varied. <laughs> so 
um, you know, we, we like to say they don't deserve the stigma that they get <laughs> from, sorry, I had to do it, um, you know, that, too. that they get from everybody. <laughs> I was holding off on that, but Mikhail was <laughs> oh, no, like, we're I doing it. it. I, it. <laughs> I love it. Stigma. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> now the pollinator uh, populations are changing and um, we know that they are in, are in decline. So why is that happening? I think one of the key reasons our pollinator populations are declining within our home state of Maryland and probably in other states as well is because we have habitat destruction. We're moving into a more urbanized environment versus, you know, having vast meadowlands or upland meadows or, you know, wildlife, wildflower habitat where our pollinators evolved. There's not a lot of long-term research about our pollinator decline, but that is one of the key factors here is that we have an increased urbanization and increased population. Another key factor is pollution, the type of lighting that we're using at night, pesticide usage, no matter what kind of pesticide, it could have a, an effect on like the larval stage of a pollinator or you know the adult stage. So that gets back into that whole five key principles of reading a label, knowing what it's going to impact. And you know a lot of our pesticides are gonna stay on it what things they'll, it it will have a warning about pollinators, like, hey, this will impact our pollinators. And then we also, we haven't gotten into this yet, but climate change is a really big issue. The fluctuation in our temperatures, I mean, just probably what, like a couple of weeks ago, it was 80 degrees. And then five days later, it's 30. And those fluctuations in our temperature can really impact that signal that our pollinators get to emerge and they could be emerging at the wrong time when their host plants aren't around and aren't flowering. We have a big increase of invasive species. So either invasive insects or invasive plants. And then our pollinators don't have the native larval host plants that they are going to use for their young. Um, and then with tying in with climate change and invasive species, we have different parasites and diseases that are coming into play because our climate is changing and we're getting warmer fluctuations and different changes in our temperature. There's, there's a, it's a big ecosystem and how everything melds together and can impact our pollinators. Very true. Um, and that was a lot to think about, but mm-hmm. absolutely good advice. Now, if I'm planting and I am someone who is blind or have low vision and, you know, gardens, people always think of it in a visual manner. But are there ways that um, what are some great ways to plant for the olfactory experience of being able to have a garden that smells unique? I think that one of the biggest things to add into your garden, and I do this, is I add in some type of herbs that have different smells and textures, like rosemary is a huge one. And it has, rosemary has these great, like little tiny purple and white flowers too, that, I mean, are great for our pollinators. Um, And rosemary is a woody shrub 
or it turns into a woody shrub if you plant it in the right place. And that's a great one for your olfactory senses. Mint in a container. <laughs> yes, cool. in a container. <laughs> but there's so many different varieties of mint, you know, from spearmint to peppermint to pineapple mint to apple mint. All of these different types of mint have different textures and different smells. I love lemongrass as an addition into a container because that has its own like wonderful, like grassy texture, woody grassy texture, and then the lemony smell or lemon bravinum or different types of basil and thyme. There are so many different herbs that you can incorporate into your garden that give that olfactory additive. And even indoors, these plants can work. Like I have lemongrass in a container that I move outside in the summer and then it comes inside in the winter. You know, um, rosemary's the same. Basil is one of those that is kind of iffy. You can kind of get it to survive the winter, but it's a little hard if you don't have the right light conditions. But those are some herbs are top tier for olfactory senses. Oh, that's great. I will say though, when I did plant my mint, it attracted a lot of flies. I don't yeah. know why <laughs> it was covered in flies. Bad experience. I'll keep it in a pot. <laughs> I will keep it in a pot. And I think, um, you know, Rachel kind of said this, but there are so many different plants in the mint family and some are more aggressive than others, but salvias are are a great plant to include and just like yeah. Rachel said like the pineapple sage or pineapple mint is one of those salvias and it really does smell very fruity so that hopefully we can find you some alternatives LaShawn we don't want you to have another mint experience pineapple <laughs> mint is my favorite it's great it's beautiful pineapple mint. and it smells it. amazing yeah and oh, I, I would also time. say it's a great one. Oh, sure time of course time <laughs> <laughs> That is so wonderful. Okay, now I'm, I'm learning from my experience. Definitely taking notes here. Um, but we know coming up is Earth Day. And all around the, the world, people are thinking about how to preserve and sustain our planet. And what are some things that they can do to be part of that? Um, so what is one thing a gardener can do to help protect and sustain our planet? Earth Day should really be like the whole oh, year. Year, right. So, yes. like, you really should think about it within like the whole year because you can do things to help Earth and the environment no matter what. Like you can do things in the winter that help. You can do things in the spring and summer that help. You can do things in the fall that help. Like you really should think about it all there. So like we're here to tell you time. that Earth Day is all the time. <laughs> And I think one of the, the biggest things or one of the easiest things you can do at home and feel like you're making a contribution is just planting native plants. Or if you have um, some of the invasive plants listed, um, you know, removing them and replacing them with something native. And I think a big impact people can make is even just planting trees, even if they're small little woody trees that you get from, um, you know, like the Arbor Day Foundation or some other uh resource that's handing them out for free this this Earth Day, um, because trees can make a huge impact as far as like climate change and, and a resilient environment. So that's that's a really easy thing to do if you have the space for it. I think it's really important to reduce our use of pesticides if possible. Um, so that could be a herbicide or insecticides. They all fall under the term pesticide um, and being conscious of when we are 
if we need to use those, being conscious of when we are using them and only using them if it's the absolute last resort and incorporating a good integrated pest management plan into your garden and making sure that, you know, it's the right pesticide at the right time, you know, and you're following the label. I would say for me, being someone who used to live in an apartment building for a while, I know a lot of times gardening in general can seem really off-putting if you don't have a yard. So for me, it's even if you're just planting a few seeds in a pot that's going out on your balcony, every little bit helps. Even if you're you're not doing a native, because native plants, there are some that will take pots okay, but a lot of them um, don't, don't particularly like being in smaller containers that you would have on like a patch or a patio, but anything is better than nothing. And I think just exploring the environment and learning about the environment is good. And especially in April and that springtime, get out and enjoy the great outdoors. If you can't have a garden in your own property and there's not a community garden, find a park nearby, find something and just enjoy, especially if you have kids um, or if you are a young adult, go out and just observe the world. Like rifle through some some leaf litter, find some earthworms, look at some isopods, like just take, this is a great time to reflect on all the other things that we share this planet with. And then to take that time to think about like, because you know that you're sharing the planet with them, what are you doing that's impacting them and vice versa? Like they do a lot to help us. What can we do to help them? So doing something as simple as making sure that you don't leave litter at the park um, because that litter will eventually get washed into a storm drain and we'll make it out to the Chesapeake Bay. So little things like that, I think can, can really help. Um, a lot of times people think like they have to do massive big things and the little things can do a lot as well. And I think Emily hit a really important point. Even if you don't have a property that you're taking care of, chances are there's probably some sort of community Earth Day event going mm-hmm. on where there's, and it might not even be in April, it might be at another time where there's a tree planting or even just picking up litter, like Emily mentioned. Um, so there's a lot of different uh, events out there to, to help engage in. So you can feel like you're still contributing and, and helping towards the planet without having your own yard. I, I think it's really important to give back. In fact, this is motivating me to to try and hold something where I'm out planting on Earth Day this year. I would also say this is a great time if you've got transportation to go visit like a state or a national park or even just a public community garden kind of place because a lot of those places um, receive funding and if people don't use them, they potentially lose the funding and then the land might get sold and you might just get more homes put on them, which is, I mean, people need homes. So we want that, but like, we also want to keep our greenscapes and our, our areas in, in our environment. Okay. Now I'm going to get off my sofa. (laughs) (laughs) It's just very inspiring. Yeah. Um, Yes. I mean, even if you like, if you've got really young kids, put some sunflower seeds in a wet paper towel and a Ziploc bag and put it in the window and just let them watch like seeds become life, like, mm-hmm. and then put it in a pot and just watch them bloom. Like you don't have to spend a lot of time and energy and money to grow stuff um, and to learn about growing stuff. So I appreciate Michaela and Rachel and Emily for being here. But before you go, I got to ask you one more question. Okay. If you Mm. were a flower, what flower would you be? (laughs) Oh my gosh. This is the the hardest question you asked all all time. This This is is, tricky. 
it's hard because it means we have to narrow down the like many, many favorites that we have. Cause pretty sure every episode we, we say a plant and we go, it's one of our favorites. And so, um, <laughs> I think if I was, a, I, if I was a flower and this might surprise you, it'd actually be a type of grass because most people don't realize that, um, grasses have flowers too. They're just very, very, very small and ind indistinguishable. Um, and they don't pollinate by insects. They mostly pollinate by wind because the pollen is so teeny tiny. Um, so I'll go ahead and say broomsed, which is a native grass um, Ooh, to Maryland. One. In fact, even in the winter in this time of year, you'll see it. It's it's like an orangey bronze kind of color and it adds a little bit of interest to the landscape. So I like to think that's me. I add a little bit of interest to the winter <laughs> landscape. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, you know, no surprise I'm picking a native grass, but um, I know Emily and Rachel have some good picks too. I do. I well, you know, and I mean, it's no surprise that you picked broomsedge to to Emily and I because we we know like how much Michaela is in love with this with this grass. It's really difficult to pick a, a favorite flower. It, it's incredibly difficult for me. I'm, I'm not gonna pick daffodil because usually that would be like I go on and on about planting daffodils and different bulbs and varieties that I she bought usually... 400 daffodil bulbs last year and planted oh, wow. them all. So like <laughs> Rachel loves her spring blooming flowers. I do, I do, but you know one that has uh, a non-spring blooming native flower that has really grown on me over the last like five years has been late bone set, which is Eupatorium perfolium. Is that right, Michaela? Perfoliatum. Per perfoliatum. <laughs> I knew I was going to get it wrong. She's our <laughs> Latin queen. You know, this is a late blooming native perennial that usually blooms from mid to late July through October. It is a amazing pollinator plant. But it's not for the for the normal kind of landscape. It kind of like takes on that wild characteristic. It's about six to seven foot tall. It attracts so many different pollinators at the end of the season. It's amazing. I have so many different videos of all the different pollinators on this plant from solitary bees to bumblebees to different types of butterflies and moths. It's just an amazing amazing flower. I love it. I absolutely love it. And it is my favorite, I think. You should ask me next week. It'll be <laughs> It might change next week. <laughs> That's okay, Rachel. I love it. And Emily? This was really hard. I like switched like several times, but I think the one that I finally decided on and I got the okay from Michaela and Rachel that I'm cool enough to pull this off is going to be um, sundews. So these are a tiny little plant, but they are carnivorous, meaning that they get some of their nutrition comes from the soil, but you tend to find these in bogs. So not the most rich soil. So what they do is they have these little pink hairs that come out of them, which um, you guys can't, can't see me. I've got green hair now, but my summer color is pink, which is probably the other reason that I got told that I was okay to do this. So they've got these little red hairs and they produce this little sap, this like sugary sticky sap and then flies, small flies, mosquitoes, gnats get stuck on the sap. And then the sap releases an enzyme that slowly breaks them down and they reabsorb the insects nutrients into them. So this is how they supplement their nutrition because they live in these like boggy-ish habitats. 
Um, but they're rather, the ones that we have native in Maryland are rather small. They're only like a few inches wide and a few inches tall, but I just, I think they're really cool. I have an entomology jig background, so it sort of ties in with the insects. I'm a big water person, so bogs and swamps are kind of where I like to be. Um, I don't like being on full sun. I sunburn really easily. So like, I feel like this plant sort of works for me um, in sort of a, a weird roundabout way. So yeah, that's my choice. <laughs> I love it. This has been, I, I, I haven't laughed so much during a podcast. This has been wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. The Garden Time <laughs> team, please tell us how we can reach you all. So you can uh, find our podcast pretty much in any place that podcasts are available. We also do have a website, uh, which is buzzsprout and then slash the garden time podcast.com. I believe if you Google garden time podcast, we also pop up. We also every single month, our podcast will get put on the Maryland grows blog, which is part of the home and garden information centers blog. So they'll post it up. And we also do have a Facebook page as well. So if you're on Facebook, you can search garden time podcast. And all of this is again, time spelled T H T H Y M E. There you go. So you can find us through that way. And then uh, we do have a Gmail account as well. So UME because university of Maryland extension garden podcast at gmail.com. If people have garden related questions, they can email those right into us. And then sometimes if we get two or three questions all around the same topic, we feature it on our next episode as well. So we've had one or two times where we've had lots of people ask questions about something. And that's basically been one of our topics in our next podcast. So Wonderful, wonderful. I want to wrap up our, our discussion today. Thank you again, Michaela, Rachel, and Emily. And I want to just urge our audience to, again, get involved and get out there and do something with the environment get in the garden, get your hands dirty, just invest in our native plants and think about our pollinators. Thank you all again. And you can, before I let you all go, uh, get in touch with the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Print Disabled through our um, website address. And that is www.lbph.maryland.gov. And you can catch all of our podcasts on anchor.fm forward slash MD state S-T-A-T-E-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y. That's M state, MD state library. Um, so thank you all again and have a fantastic rest of your year. Thank you Take so much. All right. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this has been a presentation of the Maryland State Library Agency. For links to additional resources provided by today's presenter, please visit the show notes. For more information on MSLA or the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Print Disabled, visit marylandlibraries.org.